Well, dear congregation, I invite you now to please turn your very prayerful attention to that passage of God's holy word that I read to you in your hearing just a moment ago there in 2 Kings and the 18th chapter. As we come to this chapter here this morning, just remind us what we have seen of late. Remember last week in chapter 17, if you're with us last week, we saw how the Lord forsook Israel in the north. The capital of Israel then was Samaria. Remember the nation is divided in two now. It has been long since that time of Solomon and after Solomon his son Rehoboam. The nation has been split. The ten tribes in the north later be called Israel and then Judah in the south with little Benjamin. And in chapter 17 we saw the Lord utterly forsake Israel. And he scattered them among the nations. It was that fulfillment of that covenant promise that we read in Deuteronomy 28, where the Lord said, if Israel forsook his laws and forsook his covenant, if they broke that covenant, we read those words in Deuteronomy 24, verse 64, and the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from one end of the earth even, the other. And we saw that take place as the king of Assyria came in, he took away Hoshea, who was the very last king of Israel in the north, and imprisoned him. And then he besieged Samaria, the capital of Israel in the north, for three years. People were almost starved to death. Many were led away into a foreign land. And he brought foreigners in into Israel in the north, so that they never looked and they were never the same again. Even up until the days of the Lord Jesus, the land was then called Samaria. And we have the woman from Sychar that he visited. And they never had a king again. Israel were bereft of a king. They ceased, as it were, to be a nation. Foreigners were brought into all the cities. So quickly, so rapidly, it changed. One never would have imagined that all that land would have been lost. And we saw the theme because it was prophesied by Hosea the prophet. Hosea chapter 1 verse 9, Then said God, Call his name Laomai, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. And they never were anymore. They ceased to be. The ten tribes of Israel in the north were no more. They didn't become the United Kingdom. They didn't become Europe. They didn't become the USA. They didn't become China or Russia or any other nation. They ceased to be a people because of their continued idolatry, ignoring God's commandments. He utterly forsook them. Look back there at chapter 17, verse 18. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. And that, by the way, again, is in the south. Now God is keeping Judah in the south because the Lord Jesus Christ would he not come from the tribe of Judah. Now by and large, Judah, of course, they weren't perfect. They were sinners. 
So were those in Benjamin. It was called Judah because Judah was the larger of the two tribes. Little Benjamin with Judah. And the Lord would come from that tribe, from the tribe of Judah. Long promised the Savior would come. Born in Bethlehem. But by and large, the ten tribes now, they scattered, they dispersed throughout. We saw that last week. Therefore, we can write over that chapter as we thought, not my people, no more my people. But the Lord has a remnant. By and large, Judah, there were in Judah a faithful remnant. Not all in Judah were saved. But there was a godly line. There was a crimson thread of believing people here. And the Savior would eventually come through that people there of Judah. They were not utterly forsaken, but Israel were. Now we see here, we could put over the theme here in 2 Kings 18, Judah not forsaken. Judah not forsaken. And that's true. Every one of God's children, they are sinners like the rest of the people of the world. The Lord has saved us. He's put a different spirit in us. And you do see a different spirit here in Judah, as you do with all of God's children. They are born of the Spirit. Of course, not everyone in Judah is saved. But here we're going to consider this godly king here, Hezekiah. As we read, there were none like him ever since. Godly. He was like David, we're told. Now, David, again, wasn't a perfect man. But we know that the Scriptures tell us that David was a man after God's own heart, wasn't he? He wasn't perfect, but he loved the Lord. And when David sinned, my friends, it was public sin. And he confessed it. And he owned his sin before the public and before people. And he was a humble man. Now, what we see here is the Lord raises up in, my friends, this is remarkable. Judah, as we read in the last chapter, had sinned. And there was darkness in Judah. But God here now raises up for himself a godly king in the darkest of hours. And this gives us great encouragement, doesn't it? I want you to notice, first of all, as you come to verse 1 with me there, how God raises up this godly king, Hezekiah, at a time when we wouldn't expect it. We see Israel in the north having gone down, 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 downhill until eventually God judges Israel in the north. And now Judah, Judah has its sin. But think of this king's father, Ahaz. He was a wicked man. You remember Ahaz? His father? He sent his sons and put his sons in the fire. That's how bad the king of Judah was prior to Hezekiah. His father was a wicked king. Now notice, verse 1, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel. So Hoshea is still king in Israel. Israel is still a nation, but God is going to judge Israel in just a few years. Remember, he was only king for nine years. But in his third year, when Hoshea was king of Israel in his third year, that is, while Israel still existed as a nation, 
that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Now again, I said his father was Ahaz, the son of Ahaz. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign. And he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abi, the son of Zechariah. And notice verse 3, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. Now David is always the benchmark of what is right in a king. David, though, was not a perfect man. David was a wonderful foreshadowing in many ways of the Savior to come. David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, who would come. Now, firstly, we must remark as we come to this, this is firstly truly astonishing, is it not? To see such a godly king come from such an ungodly line. Think of his father. His father, as I said, Ahaz. He was so wicked. He practiced false worship. He caused many of his children to go into the fire and to be sacrificed to the false god Molech. And that's why God had judged certainly most of Canaan. Remember before even the Israelites came in. If you just turn back to the second chronicles, it's always important when we Looking at Kings, we also look at Chronicles, Second Chronicles 28, and the verse 1 we read, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, but he did not, this is uh, Hezekiah's father, he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father, for he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and made also molten images for Baalim. In other words, going to practice this Baal worship. Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom. This was a terrible place. I don't know if you know much about the valley of Hinnom. The scripture speaks so much of it. It was a, it was a wicked place. And there was death. And there were children thrown. And burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So, we remark here, first of all, how truly amazing it is that such a godly son should come from such a wicked father. Can you not see how the light was so dim in Judah? And yet, for God's mercy, and this gives us great encouragement, doesn't it? How God, you know, grace doesn't run in the veins, let me say. It doesn't run in the veins. Uh, just because somebody was a Christian doesn't mean to say your child is going to be a Christian. Grace does not run in the veins. But we are saved by grace, not by race, but by grace. And it's an encouraging reminder, isn't it, that Again, God's election even now is according to grace. I mean, you've got Jacob and Esau. Two completely different sons. Same father, yet totally different heart. What's, what's the difference? Paul tells us it's God that makes a man to differ. And God has raised up this godly king. But it is also a reminder. Just because 
Young people, you have a godly father or mother just because they're Christians. doesn't mean to say you're a Christian. Some people think that they will be right with God because of their parents. Well, mom and dad are Christians, surely. I'll, you know, I'm a child of God. My friend, the only thing that makes somebody as a child of God is the work of God humbling somebody so that that person repents of their sin and looks to the righteousness of Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no righteousness, there's no forgiveness, and there's no hope for heaven. Everyone must repent or be damned or be lost. Salvation is another thing. It does not even depend on your upbringing, although we should bring up our children in the fear and in the knowledge of the Lord. But we mustn't assume that just because somebody has been brought up in a Christian home that they are God's elect. Now sadly, there are some strange, and I've met some rather strange Christians, and I'm sure they are saved, but sometimes they think wrong. They, if they hear a surname that they're not familiar with, certain groups of churches will look upon you with great suspicion if you've been saved from the world. And they think, well, how can that happen? Well, God does save people from the world. He does. It's by grace. We have to ask ourselves, are we saved? Do we love the Lord? Have we truly been changed in the heart? It's all of grace. Like this young man here, Hezekiah. You'll see what a godly king is. Now thirdly, secondly, I want us to see, although he was not perfect, he was obedient in his life. Like David, it says in verse 3, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. It says he did that which was right. It's not just that he had the right attitude. And you know, we, we, we can know lots of things are right. But do we actually act upon those things? That's the question. He did that which was right. You know, he that knoweth to do good and doesn't do it, it is sin, isn't it? We have to do what is right. The Lord is not pleased with anything else but obedience. Now, of course, we are not saved by our obedience. We're not right with God because of our obedience. But doing what is right shows that we are saved, shows that we have a new heart, that we are born of the Spirit. Hezekiah. He was different to Amaziah. Now, remember Amaziah going back to 2 Kings 14. This is what it was said about Amaziah one of his forefathers, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did according to all the things that Joash his father did. What did Joash his father do? He burnt incense in the high places. So there was a little bit of right, but there was always a compromise in Amaziah. But not so with Hezekiah. He did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, like David his father. He was not a man of Compromise. In fact, he was a man who was proactive against evil. Amaziah compromised. So did many of the other kings. But Hezekiah was proactive against 
false worship. Something else in, there was Asa. Remember we thought of Asa before. In 1 Kings 15, 11, we read, And Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did David his father. And he took away the Sodomites out of the land. There were homosexuals practicing homosexuality. The Bible is very clear that man with man, woman with woman, is a terrible sin. This is not natural. In fact, we're told in Romans chapter 1 that it is part of the judgment of God as he gives men over to a debased and an immoral mind. But as they practice such things, it is actually the judgment of God as he gives them over to such. That was Asa. He was like David. He did that was right, but he was proactive against evil. Now notice something else, as we read here, David is the benchmark, as did David, his father. Now, of course, the Lord Jesus is the ultimate, isn't he? The Lord Jesus who would come into the temple and cleanse it. He is the supreme example of what righteousness is. The only righteous king. Now, thirdly, I want you to notice here this morning, there's godly reform by destruction of what was never sanctioned by God to be worshipped. Do you remember back in the days of Moses? As the people sinned, and uh, the Lord sent serpents to smite the people, and they were, they were dying. And the Lord said to Moses, make a brazen image and put it on a pole, so that as a man looks to it, he will live. Now that was a wonderful, as we will see in a moment, foreshadowing of the cross. Satan brought sin, didn't he? But Jesus would be made a curse for sin, my friends, upon the cross. That's why they put a crown of thorns on his head. Now, before the fall, there was no thorns in this world. There were no thistles, no thorns, but he took that crown, he took the curse for his people upon the cross. And when the serpents smit the people in the wilderness, Moses, as he lifted up the brazen serpent upon the pole, men looked and lived. And it's the same with the cross. It's the same as sinners look to Christ by faith as they see Him dying there for their sins. And He being the only righteous one. Now, I want you to notice He removed here the high places and break the images and cut down the grove. So first of all, he destroys the high places. Those high places were never sanctioned. The places up in the hills where men thought, God can't see me. And they're offering up things even to God. Why would you do that? Well, because they couldn't be bothered to go to Jerusalem. Those places, those high places were never sanctioned by Almighty God. So, we recall, don't we, that there were generations who kept on. In the Lord was never pleased with those high places. And now they're all cut down. And notice also the images. They, were, they began to have images in those places. See, from one compromise to the next. Idols. You know the second commandment. 
You know the second command? You ought to know it. We all ought to know it. Thou shalt not make a false or graven image of anything that is above or beneath. Anything here on earth or above. No angels, no men. You do not worship these things. That is sin, God says, in Exodus 20. And here these are destroyed and break in pieces these things. Now notice something else I mentioned here. The brazen serpent that Moses had made. And break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. Why? Notice. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Neshutan. Now this was wrong. This brazen serpent upon the pole was never meant to be worshipped. It was there for one time. It was only there for that one purpose. As men were bitten by the serpents and they were dying, they were to look to it. It was never to be an object of worship. It's like the cross. We do not worship the cross. We worship the one who is on the cross, but he's not on the cross. He's in heaven. The Lord is in heaven. And we worship him there. We don't want to see Christ on the cross. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. But Christ is on his throne in heaven. You see, they began to worship this graven image. Well, it was, it was made, but it was never meant to be worshipped. See, even something legitimate used. Men will idolize it. We are to worship only God. The Lord Jesus said this in John 3, 13, And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven, claiming his omnipresence there. The Son of Man who's come from heaven and is in heaven. is in heaven now. Because God is spirit. And Christ is God. But And as Moses, we read there, John 3, 14, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, said the Lord Jesus to Nicodemus, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Where? Upon the cross, and then eventually into glory. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. My friends, he was lifted up once on the cross. He was lifted up to die and to be put in the grave, but then to be lifted up into glory. And that's where you must know he is now. We do not worship a dead Savior. We'll have no cross. We'll have no cross. There used to be, years ago, a cross on this pulpit. We purchased it from community center somewhere. And uh, well, we felt it was right to remove the cross because we don't want you to fix your eyes upon that. We want you to fix your eyes upon Him who is in heaven and who is glorified. Otherwise, we'll be worshiping objects. We don't worship objects, but we worship Him. Well, there's a lot we can say. Hezekiah, he was right to destroy it because this 
became a snare to the people, didn't it? Well, there's another thing. In the New Testament, we have no sacred furnishings. You know that? In the New Testament, it's a very plain and simple worship. No table of showbread, no candles, nothing like that. We worship the Lord, who is light. Now something else I want you to notice. Fourthly, the explanation, and this is really important, to Hezekiah's abounding in the work of the Lord. He was very prosperous in the Lord's ways. And we'll see this in a moment. Look at verses 5 and 6. I want you to notice here, first of all, the, the explanation to Hezekiah's abounding in the work of the Lord as a faithful man. And I want you to think about this. He is in the darkest of hours here in Judah. And notice the explanation to his aboundingness. Notice carefully with me. It says there, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah. I want you to notice that first. He stands out as this tremendous figure who all of us men ought to learn from. Nor any were before him. Truly, he stands out, doesn't he? Now notice, these little words are always important in the Scriptures. For, verse 6, here's the reason. Here is the reason, my friend. Why he was prosperous. Notice. Why was he so unusual? He clave unto the Lord and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, and he prospered with us, so he went forth. He prospered, my friends. You read on. And he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. He smote the Philistines even unto Gaza and the borders thereof from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. Now, what again is the key to his success? What is the key to the Lord prospering him? Look at the little word there in verse 6. For, here is the reason, men. He clave to the Lord and he kept God's God will not bless you, men, women, and children, if you do not keep His commandments. Hear me. If I have anything to say, it's this. God does not bless a disobedient man. We are not saved by the keeping of the commandments. But I can assure you this. The Lord will not bless a man who counts little the commandments of God and who just shuns them. You turn with me to Joshua, chapter 1. It's exactly the same of old when Joshua went into the land. And I want you to notice this. Joshua was guaranteed success 
if he did one thing. And again, now hear what I'm saying. We're not saved by the keeping of the commandments, but the Lord will not bless a man in his life, will not bless his family, will not bless anything if a man is disobedient. Joshua 1.7. Here the Lord is speaking to Joshua just before he brings the people into the promised land. Only be thou strong and very courageous. Why? That thou mayest observe to do according to all the law. Why is the Lord saying that? First of all, there are going to be people that will say, Joshua, you know, you can compromise a little bit. And Joshua is going to stand in the face of much opposition. People will say, well, you can, you can make shortcuts here and there. But notice that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law, not some of it, which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper there, you see, whithersoever thou goest. In other words, you do not prosper, Joshua, if you neglect my law. This book of the law, verse 8, shall not depart out of thy mouth but thou shalt meditate thereupon. Why? So you learn it. Day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. Now notice. For, then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. See, the Lord was saying to him very, very clearly, Joshua, I will not bless you. I will not bless the people. If you do not lead by example, and if you are not a man who is committed to my ways, there are too many people, let me say, who call themselves Christians, who live a self-styled Christian life. There are too many people that are free-spirited. I will do my thing. I'll serve God how I want. I'll serve Him on my terms. There's too much free-spiritedness. We are not free spirits. We are the Lord's. And if we are the Lord's, we must cleave to Him. We must obey Him. Again, I'm stressing we are not saved by our obedience. But the Lord will never bless a man if he does not obey God. Hezekiah was just like Joshua. He claved to God's law. He loved God's law. You see, to love God's law is to love Him because the law is an expression of His character and what he, he demands of us. We are made in His image and He says, this is what I'm like and this is what I want you to be like. Don't be like the world, but honor me. And Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. If you really say you're mine, and I'm yours, you keep my commandments. We read in Scripture, in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. What does that mean? It means to wholly submit yourself to him. You acknowledge him as Lord and King and God of your life, and his word is the word that you must submit yourself to in every quarter of your life, in my life. We have to submit ourselves to him. We, we do so because we love Him. Don't say you love God and you're not keeping His commandments. 
That's what he said. Why call me Lord, Lord? And do not my, what I say, my commandments. Now you and I need to make sure that we are being obedient to the law of God in all areas of our life, friend. We've got to be a witness to other people as well. Men must be examples to older men. Hezekiah is an example to us. And we cannot, you see, expect the Lord to honor us and bless us unless we walk in obedience. Verse Samuel 2, verse 30. Remember what the Lord said to wicked Saul, who just thought, well, I'll offer sacrifice when I want. I'll obey God when I want. The Lord said, them that honor me, I will honor. And they that despise me or think little of me shall be lightly esteemed. So if I could press anything home today. Hezekiah prospered because he honored the Lord. See, the Lord will not use a man. He will not use a man who has no regard for him. Now what do we have? What did Hezekiah do? Well, we have three whole chapters in Second Chronicles covering all that he was able to achieve. Of course, because God blessed him. In Second Chronicles 29, 30, and 31. Three whole chapters given over. What did he do? Well, he reformed the temple. The temple was in a shambles. In these darkest of hours. In the worst of times. He reformed the temple. He reformed the work of the Levites and the priests who needed a godly example first. And he was that godly example. And let me say this, men. If, if you want this church to be blessed, you better be the example. And don't, I think it's hypocrisy when we are praying for blessing and we're not honoring the Lord in the first place. It's hypocrisy. Thirdly, he utterly destroyed false worship in Judah in his day and all the idols. Something else, he introduced the worthy and God-honoring offerings as we'll see in the temple. People were bringing deficient and defunct offerings. And he put the fear of God in men. And he established, as we'll see, the three yearly feasts were, which were almost non-existent at this time as we'll see in a moment. So if you turn to Second Chronicles 30, verse 1, I want you to see what he even does now. And bear in mind, Israel in the north is just about to fall completely away. So what does Hezekiah do? He begins the reform in Judah, and he writes letters, and he sends emissaries, he sends couriers, messengers, into Israel who were just about to fall. And he invites them to keep the feasts which were being neglected. Second Chronicles 31, And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, notice, all Israel and Judah, and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they would come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord of God of Israel. For the king had taken counsel and his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month. Notice, for they could not keep it at this time because the priests had not sanctified themselves. They weren't bothered. 
sufficiently, neither had the people gathered themselves together to Jerusalem. And the thing pleased the king and all the congregation, so they established a decree to make proclamation throughout all Israel, we're just about to fall, from Bathsheba even to Dan, that's right across, that they should come to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. Now notice, for they had not done it for a long time in such sort as it was written. So what does he do? He reinstitutes it. And he writes a letter. Now, he sends this entreaty. Now, notice the response. This is just before. It's very timely, isn't it? Just before God's final judgment came to Israel. Notice verse 6. So the posts went, or the couriers went with the letters from the king and his princes throughout all Israel and Judah, and according to the commandment of the king, saying, Ye children of Israel, turn again. This is an entreaty unto the Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, and he will return the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the kings of Assyria. Notice, the judgment's already starting to happen. Do you see that? But notice what happens. The vast majority of Israel laugh at him, and they would not come. Verse 10. So the posts, that's the couriers or the messengers, passed from city to city through the region of Ephraim and Manasseh, even unto Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. You see that? Nevertheless, divers or many of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. What happened after this? These men that mocked, God sent them out the land. Destroy them. Some came. Some humbled themselves. Now what we have between verse 9 to 12, come back to 2 Kings 18. What we have in verse 9 to verse 12, there was a time when Hezekiah, he was afraid. He feared because the king of Assyria came and threatened him. So what does he do? He takes the gold and the silver from the temple and he gives it. This is wrong. But bearing it in mind, he's a man. He's weak. But there comes a point where he realizes that the king of Assyria is giving him money and the king of Assyria says, keep it coming. Come on. We want more. Keep it coming. And he realizes that this isn't working. And he realizes he's going to have to dig his heels in the ground and say, no. We are not going to give you anything. But we are going to trust in the Lord. So you read. Verse 9, it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Eli, king of Israel, that Shamanzir, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. At the end of three years, they took it. And even the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is, the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. So they are taken. And then eventually the king comes up against, as we will see, comes up against Judah. So we have an account there, first of all, of Israel taken away. And then Shalmanazir comes against Judah. And 
He tries to take more. And eventually he says no. But I want you to notice as we come look at verse 13 there. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. This is what I was saying. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, he, he takes and he takes from the temple the silver and the gold, verse 14, and he gives it, verse 15, he takes all from the house of God and gives it. Now, of course, this is wrong. Now, what you have from further on down here, this is all very graphically described in Isaiah chapter 10 and also in Isaiah 22. And remember, Isaiah was a prophet at this time. And Isaiah prophesied that this king would be overthrown by the Lord. And it's a tremendous overthrow. You can read all about it. We don't have time this morning. But as I said, there came a point where Hezekiah realized that this was not going to work. Trying to pay off this wicked king of Assyria, he's just going to keep asking. And it proves the ways of the world are useless and they're futile. And the man will just keep asking, asking. And there's a fuller account if you just turn to Second Chronicles 32. And this is where we just want to pick up. It says, And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come, that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he realized he wasn't just going to take money. He took counsel with the princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city, and they did help him. So there was gathered much people together who stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? So he strengthened himself, and so on. And he builds up the wall, notice verse 5, and so on. And he stands up against this king. And it shows here that, as I said earlier, he tried to pay off this king and that Unbelieving measures, it's true to say, are always proven to be futile. But eventually he realizes that this matter needs to be dealt with head on. And you notice back here in chapter 18, verse 17, and the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah. And they meet him on the wall of Jerusalem there. And then you notice that there are three men with Hezekiah. Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, which was with him. And then you've got Shebna, and then you've got Asaph. These three men. And they try to, certainly these Assyrians try to persuade Hezekiah to give up and not to try and put up a fight. In verse 19, and Rabshakeh said unto them, Speak ye now to Hezekiah, verse 19. Thus saith the great king of Assyria, What confidence is this where thou trustest? He assumed that they were trusting in Egypt, just like Israel in the north. Thou sayest, but they are vain words. I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom dost thou trust? Thou rebellest against me. Who you are trusting in? He assumed it was Israel. Because, as I said, Israel, in the north had. Verse 21, But behold, now thou trustest thy staff upon this bruised reed, even Egypt. 
but they had a total misapprehension. Notice, you trust even upon Egypt, on of which if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt unto all that trust on him. Now notice verse 22. But if ye say unto me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? Do you see the false conception that this king has? The king of Assyria. He thinks because Hezekiah has got rid of all the high places, God's not going to be able to do anything. But actually God was pleased because he took the high places away. Do you see that? He's taken away God's high places. But God is pleased because he has taken them away. They were never meant to be. He thought, you see, notice that Hezekiah was powerless because he had taken away all these places of idolatry. You see, one thing is unsafe people speak so foolishly about God who they know nothing about, my friends. Nothing. He's saying, surely you can't expect God to help you now. Your foolish king Hezekiah has got rid of all these secret places. He knew nothing about the true and the living God. And so they wax on and they mock the army of Hezekiah. Verse 23. Now therefore, he says, I pray thee, give pledges or promises to my lord the king of Assyria, and I will deliver thee 2,000 horses if thou be able on thy part to set riders. He says, you don't even have a 1,000 or 2,000 horses. Men to, if we gave you the horses, you wouldn't even have the men to put on. He's mocking the army of Judah. Now then, if thou wilt turn away the face of one captain, at least of my master's servants, and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and horsemen. You can ask them. Egypt was known for its horses and for its power. But I will show you now, as we would think, Hezekiah didn't need horses. The Lord said, it's not by men, it's not by horses, it's not by those strength that I will deliver. Something else, Rabshakeh, makes an outright lie. I want you to notice this. Verse 25. Am I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? And he said this, the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. An outright lie. My friends, I have known people who are not Christians that have claimed to say they've had a word from God. God is going to do this. God is going to do that. And that's what Rabshakeh does. An outright lie. All to frighten. Now I want you to notice, Eliakim, one of the servants of Hezekiah, is worried. Because here, Rabshakeh is speaking in the Jewish tongue. And, and he says, I, I don't want my people to hear it. So what does Rabshakeh do? He shouts all the more in the Jewish tongue. And the people hear it. Verse 27. Hath my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the men which sit on the wall that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? I know these are graphic words. It's quite graphic. But this is what happens in a, in a 
besiegement of a town. People are practically starved to death. and They eat their own excrement. This is reality. Verse 28, Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language, and spake, Hear the word of the great king, and so on. Then he waxes on. And he says in verse 30, Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Well, I thought you said God gave you a word. Make up your mind, man. What did he say? Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. Well, you see, he tried to frighten them. And we're told here that the men held their peace that day. And they went back to Hezekiah. It says they held their peace. Notice he says he tries to frighten them. He says, look at, look at verse 33. Have the other nations, have their God saved them? Well, of course, the other nations don't have the real God. There's only one God. What is your God? So Rabshakeh basically says, let's make a deal now. You know what the outcome is. We're going to defeat you. We're going to kill you. You might as well just give up. Come and live in our land. Okay, it won't be Israel. It won't be like it is here. But you come and live with us. And it'll be okay in the end. Save yourself. Spare while you've got time. Now I want you to notice as we close the resolve of the people, verse 36, but the people held their peace and answered him not a word. You see, there's a whole different attitude here in Judah compared to Israel. My friends, this is what the church is like when it's trusting the Lord. When they have men that keep God's commandments and fear God. What did Solomon say? Let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is man's all. We see here the people hold their peace. The king of Assyria and Rabshakeh here, his messenger, is threatening. But the people hold their peace. Now we know the outcome. Tiny little Judah against a massive nation. How are they going to win? Well, if you turn to the next chapter, the answer is right there. In one night, the angel came over and destroyed 185,000 of the Assyrian army. No swords needed, no horses needed, nothing. 2 Kings 19.35, And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. My friend, this is what happens when you obey God. But if you do not obey God, behold Israel. Paul tells us in Romans, behold the goodness and the severity of God. Behold the goodness and the severity of the Lord. Severity on them which his wrath fell. Fell on those who were disobedient. Look at, uh, look at Israel laughing, scoffing. And Hezekiah says, let's keep the Sabbath, shall we? 
Let's honor the Lord, shall we? Ha ha ha. A joke. A little while later, the whole of Israel swept away. Behold the severity of the Lord. But behold the goodness of the Lord. Those that honor him. Keep his commandments. The Lord is good, my friend. But the Lord is also severe. Let me say this. Those who trust him are those who were born again. Let me read to you from Revelation 22. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life. Those that don't do his commandments are not born again. You don't get to heaven by keeping the commandments. But the fact that you keep them shows that you love him. We're told in Revelation 12, 17, the dragon, that is Satan, was wroth with the woman, that's the church, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God. That's the church. Those who don't keep his commandments, you're not part of the bride, my friend. Call yourself what you like. Wear a cross around your neck if you want. But you're not the Lord's. The dragon was wroth with a woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan is not interested in mere professors of the faith. But those that love him. The word fear is found 367 times in the scriptures. And it's used in a variety of ways. The psalmist says there is mercy with the Lord that he might be feared. The true fear of God leads to a love and obedience of God. It's a filial fear. There are many that merely outwardly fear, and they fear wrath. But you see, when you've truly been forgiven, you don't want to offend the God that has been so merciful. You want to honor Him, and you want to keep His commandments. That's the true fear. As we close, the lessons are vast in this chapter. I know we've exceeded our time this morning. But I don't want to leave you going away with just Two little pointers. What are the lessons? Number one, pseudo-Christians despise those who obey God's commandments. Look at Israel. Pseudo-believers. Something else, the unbelieving world tries to discourage the small church. Look at Rab Shaker. Look at all these others. But what can your God do for you? But there's nothing too hard for the Lord. Rab Shaker is one of many. And Rabshakeh assumed the high places pleased God. But they really didn't. Anything that's false does not belong here. Put away what the Lord is not pleased with. Something else, we close with this. The righteous hold on his way. Look at this little remnant. 
they overcame because of the Lord. He sent his angel, destroyed 185,000. They didn't need to lift a finger. The battle is the Lord's, my friends. But we have to honor him like Hezekiah had to. Amidst all the threats, Hezekiah and his people held their peace. That's what we must do. Let me say this. You don't always have to have the last word with people. People will scorn you and mock you for, for obeying God. But you know what? Look, they went home that day. It says they went home and they held their peace. You don't have to win every argument. Because the Lord will have the last word. He always does. He always does. May God bless His word. Bless our souls. Amen.